Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. So we we will reread verse 2 to begin our study. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So as we read verse 2, we need to focus first on that first phrase. The Lord first spoke through Hosea. We need to be reminded that these are the words of the Lord, that the Lord has given this word to Hosea because of what he's about to say, because of what he commands Hosea to do. He's commanding him to take a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he's asking Hosea in this specific and um, uh, example that he is to do something that otherwise would not be lawful to be an example for the people. Now this is not uncommon um, to Scripture, and we'll study a couple examples here. But we, we know that um, when the Lord speaks, He has a specific purpose when He does this. We'll start with uh, in Genesis chapter 22 as a first example of the faithful man carrying out a direct command from the Lord that otherwise they would not be doing. It would be a sinful thing to carry out these acts apart from the example, uh, specific example that they are being taught to um, carry out. So this is Genesis chapter 22. This is Abraham offering Isaac. We'll read verses 1 and 2 to look at this command. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham is here to offer up his son as a burnt offering. We know that offering up the offspring of one's body is not the typical or regular um, commandment from God. But in this specific example, God is using this test as a test. And in the end, we know that he didn't um, literally put his son to death on this burnt, as a burnt offering. But it is this special example that Abraham was going to carry out because he knew um, it was direct. It was a direct word from God. So these these things happen as an example to us. So this is uh, to show Abraham's faith, to show a type of Christ, to show um, his faith in that God can raise people from the dead in the resurrection. That there's a. It's not as if God would give this command to a godly man and there not be a purpose behind it. Um, Again, as an example. The second one we'll study is in Isaiah. We'll read 
Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah chapter 20, we'll read the whole chapter. It's just a few verses. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? So here God has given a command to Isaiah to walk with his buttock uncovered and barefoot. But it's not as if this is just a command from God, there's a purpose just like there's a purpose here in Hosea, there's a purpose in Abraham and Isaac's case, and there's also a purpose here. It's a type and an example against the people. And it says in verse 3, he gives that example. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush. So this is the sign. Again, the example that God has a specific purpose to this special word or special commandment to the prophets. And this is what we have in Hosea with him marrying harlots. We know that it would not be um, biblical or godly to want to take a wife of harlotry who is, in this case, um, actively committing harlotry. So, we'll first look at this specific commandment and what the type is trying to illustrate and what this example is. So we'll, we will reread the commandments back in Hosea 1, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord says, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So Hosea is going to take a wife of the harlot. The first aspect of this example or type is um, marriage. The marriage of Hosea in this harlot and the marriage of God to Israel is what um, is in the forefront of the mind of the Lord when he uh, is making this example. As he says in the, at the end of the verse, the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. 
So we know that the merit God's or marriage itself is a type of God's union to the people of God. <clears throat> um, a couple of cross references for this. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter five. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 30, we'll read to illustrate this um, type of merit, what marriage is a type of, spiritually speaking, between Christ and the church or the people of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, or verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So here we see the phrase, just as Christ also loved the church in verse 25. Uh, Verse 29, just as Christ also does the church. So we understand that marriage is teaching us about Christ's relationship to the church. We'll look, uh, look at another example in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So again, this is in the new heavens and the new earth. That the city, this bride, the people of God have been set apart and sanctified for their marriage to Christ. But we bring up these examples of Christ in the church or in this in both these examples, he's alluding to the true church. But here we're reflecting on God's marriage to Israel in an earthly sense and that they are the. A chosen nation that God has chosen for himself to be his bride. Um, but to look at the type in full, was there anything in this bride that God chose when he first betrothed her? If we take Hosea to be um, 
a, an exact type of what's happening here, Israel would have been a wife of harlotry. They would have been spiritual harlots from the beginning when they were taken to be the wife of Hosea and as the wife of God in the type of Israel. And we can confirm that that's actually the point that God is making um, in Joshua chapter 24. we're looking at is is the wife that Hosea taking is she a harlot because um, she has been unfaithful after the marriage or even prior to the marriage so we'll look at Joshua chapter 24 verses 19 to 24 Joshua 24:19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself, that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods, which are in your midst, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and we will obey his voice. (coughs) So when the people are proclaiming faith to God, faith to Christ, We see in verse 23, Joshua is rebuking the people. He says, Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. That these gods, they are, as they are entering the land of Canaan and the type of heaven, they still have foreign gods amongst themselves. They still have foreign gods that... um, they're worshiping. This is the spiritual harlotry that the people of Israel have had and have always had. And this is um, what they had in Egypt as well before, uh, before they were redeemed. So this is in Hosea. This is the type, the fact that the woman that he takes to be his wife as being a harlot is not an accident. This is what God is showing to the people of Israel that they were harlots when they were taken and they have continued to be harlots of the land. And he's trying to teach the people an example here with this special commandment to Hosea to take this wife that's a harlot. And this would be the same for ourselves as well. Not that we would continue in harlotry, but our state before God, before our redemption, in a true spiritual sense, we were also that of uh, spiritual harlots. Um, an example to elaborate on that concept is, we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So here as God is speaking of the redemption of his people as he is calling them to himself, we our state beforehand is we were dead in trespasses and sins. This is our spiritual harlotry. We did not worship a true and living God. We did not worship anything other than our own desires and whatever our own lusts were. Uh, especially spiritually, um, in this way, thinking of God in ways that He truly isn't. Worshiping an idol, even if that idol had the same name of Jesus. This is how we were before God redeemed us. And this is how Israel was as a type when they were redeemed and brought out of the land of Egypt to be married to God. But unlike true salvation, the people of Israel were not that way. They weren't truly redeemed, all of them. And that's what God is rebuking the people for here. We'll continue in verse 3. Hosea chapter 1 verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea is taking this wife of harlotry. And as his wife, he's gone into her and she has conceived a child and bore him a son. So first, Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. We don't know anything other of these people other than their names being reproduced here. They have no... Um, other references in the Bible or any history about them. Um, but in this verse, one, um, one phrase we should not overlook is at the end of verse 3. And she conceived and bore him a son. That the son is born to the father. Uh, this is important, uh, an important distinction to make, even though naturally it makes sense that a woman, the woman bears children and the man receives the children born of the woman, that this child is born to the man. It's natural, but as we've said, because of the, the world's wisdom and their um, satanic thoughts that this idea that the the child also belongs to the man um, has been corrupted 
especially when it comes to uh, those uh, abortions and, and different things like that, that somehow this child within the woman is the woman's own possession alone. What the Bible speaks this way, and a good example of this is in Genesis 21. To cleanse ourselves of how the world speaks of childbearing between man and woman, we'll study Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So here we see many times the phrase, born to him and whom Sarah bore, repeated um, again several times so that we can be sure that the, the son is being born to the father and that this is the way nature works. So since the phrase here, the phrase is here um, in verse 3 to not look past it and um, make sure we have a proper, under, a biblical understanding of what um, be- bearing a child means um, to the father. All right, we'll continue in Hosea verses 4 and 5. Hosea chapter 1, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here... The Lord is commanding Hosea to name his son Jezreel. This is, um, as we'll study in, in the following verses, that God is using these names to, again, rebuke the people, to give an example to the people of the wrong that they have done. So the name for this son here is Jezreel. What is significant about Jezreel? What is the Lord trying to communicate by using this name. He says here in the immediate verse, we can read what he is saying, for yet a little while and I will punish the house of Jehu. So he's speaking of punishment. Punishment. The Jezreel, the literal meaning of the word or the name means God sows. So here, the name Jezreel is given because of God is sowing punishment for the people. He is sowing it, and he will bring it to fruition. 
then we know he's speaking of punishment because, again, we just read, and I will punish the house of Jehu. So this is what he has in mind. God can sow good and uh, favorable things. He can also sow punishment. But it all comes from God. So what about Jezreel? Why, um, or in Jezreel, why is the house of Jehu specifically mentioned? What is the bloodshed of Jezreel? What has happened in Jezreel that the God is rem- God is reminding the people not only that He is sowing punishment, but He says the bloodshed of Jezreel. So something has happened in Jezreel that God is bringing to mind. One example of something that has happened in Jezreel, we'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 21, is the bloodshed of Ahab and Jezebel. First Kings chapter 21, and we'll read verse 1 to give ourselves... Um, the uh, location or where we're at geographically. So 1 Kings 21 verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So Naboth, his vineyard is in Jezreel and Ahab is one that owns property next to his. We'll go to verse 17 through 19 to look at the bloodshed that actually happened or the evil that God is speaking of verse uh, 1 Kings 21 verse 17 then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying arise go down to meet Ahab king of Israel who is in Samaria behold he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. So here, even the Lord is rebuking Ahab in in this uh, immediate context, but it's speaking of the blood of Naboth and this bloodshed, that they have murdered for in verse 19. It explicitly says, have you murdered and also taken possession? As a uh, question, we know the answer to that he did murder. Um, So this is an example of the bloodshed that has taken place in Jezreel. Um, But the scripture specifically mentions Jehu, And Jehu came to power um, through much bloodshed. This is the wickedness that, again, God is bringing to mind. This is, these are likely events that the people would know of. They're, they wouldn't be secret involving kings. So to review or to study this bloodshed that God is speaking of, we'll turn to Second Kings Chapter 9. And we'll read um, verses throughout 2 Kings 9 and 10 to highlight, again, the 
the bloodshed and the wickedness that Jehu has done in Jezreel. We'll start at 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. To give ourselves some context to the events. So second kind excuse me, Second Kings chapter nine verses one through three. <clears throat> now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Romoth Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers, and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So we read this first to understand that Jehu has been anointed to be king um, by the Lord. And then how does he bring about taking, uh, taking power? Uh, We'll first read verse 7. This is the purpose. Why God has raised up Jehu to do these things. 2 Kings 9, 7. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. So God is telling Jehu, that he has raised him up to strike the house of Ahab and Jezebel. So let's see this um, take place. Second Kings 9, verses 22 to 26. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many... So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now when, now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. This is the assassination of Joram. And he is carrying out the punishment um, that God has proclaimed against him. Next example is in the next ver- two verses, verses 27 and 28. This is Second Kings 9, 27 and 28. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Iblim, but he fled to Megiddo, and he died and died there. Then his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. So Jehu is now assassinating assassinating Ahaziah. 
And this is again happening in Jezreel. Next example in verses 32 and 33. Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. This is the um, death of Jezebel. Jezebel is being um, thrown down to her death before she is eaten by the dogs. And this is um, Jehu who is speaking to these men. Who is on my side? So they, they know he's been anointed and, um, and comply with his command to, to throw her down and to kill her. More bloodshed. So now moving into 2 Kings chapter 10. We'll read verses 6 to 8. This is... Further destruction of Ahab's sons. Then he wrote a letter to them a second time, saying, If you are on my side, and you will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. <clears throat> now the king's sons, seventy persons, were at the great <clears throat> excuse me, were with the great men of the city, who were raring them. When the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. So Jehu is commanding these things to take place. And then he has the, the men carried it out and slaughtered the 70 sons of Ahab. And they sent him to him at Jezreel. We'll continue in Second Kings 10. And verses 13 and 14. These are all the examples of the bloodshed that is associated with Jehu and his um, coming to power. 2 Kings 10, 13 and 14. Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit of Beth Echid, forty-two men, and he left none of them. And then we'll go to verse 17, 2 Kings ten seventeen. When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria. Until he had destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And then we have verse 25, where Jehu has trapped all the Baal worshippers in the house of Baal to kill them. This is Second Kings ten twenty-five. Then it came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, go in, kill them, let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword and the guard and the royal officers threw them out and went to the inner room of the house of Baal. So this is, these in 2 Kings 9 and 10 are all the bloodshed 
that Jehu has done. And this is, these are all the assassinations and murders and um, destruction that Jehu has done that God is bringing to people's mem- memory here as a reason and the example of why this is coming about. And this is one of the fruit of their harlotry, just as this is the fruit of the harlot that God has um, named here um, Jezreel. So he is going to bring about this end of the kingdom. That's uh, finally in verse 5. And this did happen, and we can confirm that in Second Kings 17, verse 6. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried, a, carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So here we see the destruction of Israel and they being carried away to exile. So in Hosea, this is what God is preaching to the people because of their wickedness, and especially this specific example of wickedness um, being a highlight to the people, that this is the harlotry that they have committed. This is um, why this destruction is coming about. But one, one thing we need to study more closely is when we were going through the bloodshed of Jehu, we read at the beginning in Second Kings 9, 1-3 that Jehu was anointed by the Lord. He, the Lord prophesied and gave the word to Elijah to make him king and carry these things out. So why... Um, why is God punishing Israel for these things? What, what is um, Jehu to do if he has been brought up, brought up to do these things um, for the Lord to carry out the punishment that God had prophesied to the descendants of Ahab? Was Jehu truly righteous and truly converted when he did these things? We'll turn to 2 Kings 10, 30-31 for the answer. Second Kings chapter 10, verses 30-31. to The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. So though Jehu carried out the word of the Lord, executed it relating to the destruction of the house of Ahab, 
but his heart was not truly with the Lord. He was not careful to walk with the Lord, and he committed the same idolatry, the sins of Jeroboam, the kings before him, in which he made Israel sin. So how can it be that a man elevated by God to carry out this punishment of God, but his sins, he's not guiltless in his sins. We see this is the example here. We saw that he was anointed, but we see that he is unrepentant and he is not following after the Lord with his whole heart. The answer to these things is Romans in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we'll read verses 17 to 23. Romans chapter 9, verses 17 to 23. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. So here we have another example of this same thing, this same concept. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh. But did he raise up Pharaoh for his spiritual well-being because Pharaoh was redeemed? No, the purpose of raising up Pharaoh was to demonstrate his power, God's power. So this is Pharaoh, as it explains later in the, in the verses 21 and 20, that Pharaoh, he was molded. He was raised up to be a vessel for common use and one to be later destroyed. But he had his purpose, just as every common um, uh, clay vessel would have. So the man who hates God for this doctrine... The thing that God tells him is he says, why would you answer back to God? God has made these things this way. God has made these people this way. And if one hates God 
for this doctrine to predestine those for different purposes, that they are the one who is prideful to answer back to God. So these, these things um, are, are here to remind us, or this concept is here in Hosea to show us that um, though Jehu was one brought up by the Lord, though Jehu carried out the will of the Lord, he is still guilty, he still has his sins, he's still um, a wicked man, and that um, God is putting an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel for this sin, and he's reminding the people of this sin. So let us be reminded of God's power, our weakness, and that we, um, that we were harlots, spiritual harlots, before being redeemed, And all these things should humble us and bring us before God with humble minds and grateful hearts, seeking to please the Lord in all that we do. Amen.